Welcome to Dot Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we are talking about chapter six of The Subtle Knife, Lighted Flyers. Anyone else just picture uh, like a flyer on fire? Yeah, I I was interested <laughs> reading the chapter because I was like, why is it called that? It's literally like one <laughs> one little bit momentarily. They're like, she followed the lighted flyers and that's it. Like, it's it just yeah, it sounds like somebody set a leaflet on fire. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> well, you know, we'll get into it. We'll see what it refers to. Sure. <laughs> How? Have you been? I'm okay. Like, I was just saying before we started recording, my life is like 90% this podcast at the minute. So like, I don't really have that much to be like, I know most of us don't, because if you're in the UK, especially, we're all in a second lockdown, but I don't really have much to share other than that I'm just always doing podcast stuff and watching TV. Woohoo. <laughs> Yay. Nice. Oh, I just feel like life's thrown a bunch of stuff at me in the last two weeks. I've just been doing lo- loads of mm-hmm. things and it's all inconvenient timing because I'm working up to attempting to do a Christmas shop update and I kind of need Christmas to go well because that will be my m- money <laughs> that I need to pay rent in January and February when it's notoriously quiet and nobody buys anything because they're all skint from Christmas. I'm just stressing out. I'm just stressing out. And then loads of life stuff keeps happening. And like, I just could really do with a break and a couple of extra weeks that I get to have that nobody else gets to have. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I feel you. There's lots of life stuff going on. And I don't want to be like a massive Debbie Downer, but I kind of wish we just didn't have to do Christmas this year. Like, I'm really not looking forward to it at all with the whole pandemic and then just other shit going on. I'm like, can we just skip it? please I don't want to do it it's simultaneously like I need it I need to like with Halloween it was like I just I want to tap into that festive feeling and I want to use it as a way to like make activities that make me feel joyful but then also on top of it there's loads of like stress of like are you going to be able to get home for Christmas every conversation you have with your family they're like oh I hope we're going to get to see you for Christmas and you're like yeah, me too. But also, there is still a pandemic happening, and I don't want to like make grandma ill. So maybe I shouldn't come back. Like I don't know. It's just really hard to like negotiate all of that in your head. Did you see what they were saying on Sky News today? I mean, by the time this episode comes out, we might already know. But as of the time of recording, they were saying that like, oh, for the UK, we'll give you five days over Christmas where you can basically do what you want but then we're going to lock down for the whole of January and it's like I'd rather just carry on as we are and then not have to do another lockdown of in January like you can keep the five days over Christmas like I understand Christmas means a lot to a lot of people but if I have to sacrifice seeing my family one year so that the whole country doesn't have to go into lockdown again then I would do that yeah I yeah. don't like five days for a month is not a good trade-off for me personally. And January is a really tough month. 
uh, in general for a lot of people. And I could do with like being able to see friends and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a really hard trade off. And you know, when you're just done with having to think about it as well. This is a really, really upbeat intro. We're doing so well. Uh, <laughs> I hope that uh, the, I, I really hope the listeners find this cathartic because I'm sure that I'm sure that lots of you would love to tune in and hear us be, being really upbeat and positive about it all but it's just really hard sometimes yeah we can't lie to you we can't lie to you it's tough also like it's fine that it's hard and it's a bit shit at the moment because like ugh, it's getting like it's dark out like what the fuck it's five o'clock and it's dark outside like stop it the world stop being winter i usually love winter i'm all about a woolly jumper i'm all about sitting in a cozy pub with a glass of mulled wine but guess what i can't do right now (laughs) yeah it's tough i struggle with winter a lot one of the things that helps is being able to do like what you just said like going to see your friends in a pub or having your friends over to do nice things and that's not a thing that can happen this year so it is really tough and I'm just like can it be like March already please can we just skip all this it'd be great if we just went straight to spring Mm. hooray oh my god so exciting so full of joy and laughter Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we hope that you all are full of, of joy and laughter but we understand if you're not because of the world and hope that we bring some kind of comfort moaning about our own shit. Maybe that helps you. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I personally love listening to grumpy people talk grumpily about their grumpy lives. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy as much as I do. (laughs) It can't can't all be sunshine and rainbows. It's it's tough. It's a tough life at the minute. Sure is. Do you want to know what is sunshine and rainbows? Mm, tell me please uh, patrons oh yeah Woo-hoo. that gives me a lovely little boost of like happiness when i get a message from you or an email through that's just like you've got a new patron and we're like yeah yes. and that makes us do a little happy dance and we love it, it. Does. so this this week we have to do a massive shout out to Kat, Zachary and Haley, who are all new patrons and we're so excited to have you. We're so excited to chat to you in the Discord and hang out and have you as part of the family. Yay! Yes, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your support and thanks for giving us all the warm, fuzzy, nice feelings on the top of a pretty shit week, I would say. <laughs> it's always nice yeah. to... Uh, yeah to like Richard have have new people in the little family that we've got um, and get to know every, everyone on the discord I've really enjoyed doing that so yay welcome yay. yes Woo-hoo. we love it <laughs> yay so would you like to tell me what your demon is this week I think my demon this week has to be a squirrel hmm. because I spent the entire week making acorns <laughs> for my shop I make little acorns they're cute and I've spent the entire week staring at them and working on them and I think if I had a squirrel demon they would bloody love helping out making little acorns and mm-hmm. like organizing them for me and it would be really cute to have a little squirrel 
That's cute. And it would also just be really cute, like, sitting on your shoulder or, like, co- getting all cosy, like, wrapping up in its tail because they've got the fluffiest tails. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Also, you should tell the world when your shop update is, although it might be a classic Rachel shop update, which does not align with the date of the episode. Rachel's shop update is 28th. This episode is going up on the 30th, so if there's anything left... Go. Go to richmix.co.uk now and get it. If I've had to delay it, then sad times, but good for you, because it means you won't miss out. True. So yeah, have a look. Rich has been working very hard on lots of cute stuff. What would your demon have been? It's been, as we have already established, it's been a tough week. So I was thinking, what would I want? It's been a lot of thinking going on, a lot of a lot of sadness in, in, in my world and I feel like I need a distraction. So I was like, usually I, I keep going back to dogs, but I'm not going to do it because like, I think dogs are just my ultimate comfort in the sense of I love dogs, mm. but I'm not going to do it because I've done, done dogs like a couple of weeks ago. Inspired by the TV show, I'm going to go for a red panda. Yeah, red panda. Love I it. just think they're really cute and playful and I feel like if my demon was a red panda... It would just be really cute to look at for one. But I also feel like it'd distract me and be we could play little games and stuff. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It'd be really cute. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Love to hear it. Red pandas are great. <laughs> the red panda and the squirrel, they could be friends. Yes. There is oh. and they're all about having amazing tails. Yes. Yes. Yes, there's a lot of tailage going on between them. <laughs> Shall we find out what the hell lighted flyers is about then? Yeah, let's do it. last chapter we learnt more about Lyra and Will's dynamic as they hid in our Oxford together. Back in Jitagetsi they found a bunch of kids terrorising a poor cat and it was horrible. Will finally read the letters from his dad. In this chapter Lee's mission to find Stanislaus Grumman leads him to murdering a Skraelin from the Magisterium. Seraphina and Rita witness what the spectres can do firsthand and learn more about the new world that Chittagatsi is in. Ruta leaves to follow the angels on their journey to Lord Asriel's fortress. Boo. Boo Asriel. <laughs> this whole... It, every, like, so many of my notes are just like, oh, look, look, it's more shit that Asriel's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> okay, uh... so... We're back with Lee, which obviously I'm super happy about because I, I missed Lee, even though we only had him a couple of chapters ago. Yeah. But I am really enjoying that we're getting more of him and more of him on his own and his own adventures. I was going to say unrelated to Lyra. Obviously, they're very related to Lyra, but without Lyra. So we're getting like more of a glimpse of, of like him as a person and like where he came from and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Solo Lee adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he is in a bar in Lyra's world and he's trying to find out more information about Stanislaus Grumman. He is with his old pal, who is called Sam... Sam Cansina? Sam Cansina. I listened to the audiobook chapter before we recorded. Ah, are you going to help us with pronunciation? (laughs) Let's hope I can remember them. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Sam Cansino, I think, is right. Great, great, great. Texan guy. I would just like to say, pickled fish and black bread sounds disgusting. It sounds like the green eggs and ham of Lyra's universe. I'm not here for it. No, thank you. Do you want to know what my note says? What's that? 
They're eating pickled fish and black bread, which sounds bloody delicious. <laughs> I love fish and pickled things. I feel like this shouldn't shock you. I just assumed that your pickle, your love of pickles only applied to like gherkins and not, not fish. I would eat anything pickles. Although I haven't tried pickled eggs before. I don't know how I feel about that. But I would definitely eat pickled fish. I love fish. Sometimes my argument with fish is that it's not fishy enough. And I feel like pickling it would make it even more strongly oh, fishy. So I'm definitely into it. Rachel's just died. I've killed her. Uh, <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm surprised that... Yeah, I I would not eat it. I would not eat oh, I'd pickled smash fish it. and black bread. Oh, I would. I'm, yeah. I am honestly surprised that you are shocked that I would like that. Black bread sounds maybe slightly intriguing because it's like, is it like charcoal bread? Like, could it be? Because I've tried charcoal cheese before and that's really nice. Oh, I just love bread. I feel like I'd just eat any type of bread, to be honest. Any of the bread. Mm. Well, fair enough. <laughs> we learn something new every day. <laughs> we learn a little bit more about Stanislav's Grumman, like throughout these bits in the chapter. We learn that. Every single person that Lee meets in this bar is a gossipy bastard, and we love Absolutely. it. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So gossipy. It's like going down the village pub and somebody's mentioned like someone that's a little bit notorious in the village, and they're, uh, everyone's having an hour about him. Yeah, And everyone's like, like got their ears pricked up, like, oh yeah, I heard yeah, this Especially the barman, especially like, <laughs> yeah, all the regulars down the bar that are like, oh, you're talking about Jerry, are you? Oh, we know Jerry. <laughs> Should have seen the mess he got himself into last week. And then they love they love telling the story. Like, yes. <laughs> I'll just read what uh, Sam Cancino says about Stanislav's Grumman. He'd walked into a trap that full Yakovlev laid, said the, uh, the fur trader went on, and cut his leg open to the bone. Instead of using regular medicines, he insisted on using the stuff the bears use, blood moss. Some kind of... Lichen? 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 I was sure. Lichen. Lichen. It ain't a true moss anyway. He was lying on a sledge, alternately roaring with pain and calling out instructions to his men. They were taking star sights and they had to get the measurements right or he'd lash them with his tongue. And boy, he had a tongue like barbed wire. A lean man, tough, powerful, curious about everything. You know he was a tartar by initiation. And we just like get a massive picture painted of Stanislav Grumman in this chapter. Um, and turns it turns out that he's like into many different things and does many different things and everyone's got a different story to tell about him which is interesting it's interesting that yeah so many people know about him he's a bit notorious we potentially get an idea that he is a little bit as realish in some ways yeah in terms of mm -hmm. this like immediate level like stories being told about him an immediate level of like respect and authority that he seems to manage to get himself into in whatever situation he's in, which is interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I love that it says here that Hester crouched at his elbow on the bar, eyes half closed as usual, ears flat along her back. I just love Hester and I love that her little eyes are always half closed and she just always seems like super chill, but she's so clever and she's always listening. And yes. I love it. Yeah, I love it's going to come up later that she just gives nothing away and like... yeah. Yeah, she's the perfect partner in crime. Oh, we love her. Oh, we do. Oh, so we get a bit more context about 
the place that they are. It ba- it's basically just a place that like Lee has frequented over the years um, as he has been around, as we know that he gets around. A lot of people are talking about the changes that have happened in the world. So as you were saying, like Asriel's basically fucked everything up and everyone's noticing it. And it's meaning that people can't work. So like fishermen can't go out and fish and all that kind of stuff because there's a really heavy fog that's like come over the place that they're in. Which is shit. Asriel, you're so shit. I hate you. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, um, it's a pretty long list of stuff. Again, Asriel causing global warming pretty yeah. much here. Being being the cause of some climate change for everybody and ruining the local economy and putting people out of jobs. Who knows? Who knows who's like died because of the fog? Like fishermen getting lost and like all sorts of stuff. Sounds like to me that Asriel is a Tory. <laughs> Absolute Tory. <laughs> But he uh, thinks he isn't. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I wanted to ask you, because mm-hmm. one of the things that is mentioned in the list of stuff that is fucked up is that a squid a hundred feet long snatched three fishermen out of their boat and tore them apart. Have you ever seen the giant squid at the Natural History Museum? No, I haven't. Uh, I want to take you there. They have you have to sign up for like a special tour because they have basically they have a giant squid in a tank that is a specimen of a squid it is a dead squid it's not a live squid that would be cruel to keep it in captivity but who knows how bad it is to have a dead one besides the point (laughs) they've got this massive squid it's pickled you'd probably love it um (laughs) probably right up very straight but it's it's on the menu (laughs) it's so big that they didn't really know how to sort out making the tank for it. And they mm-hmm. had to contact Damien Hurst's shark no. tank guy to find wow. out how to make a tank that big. It has to be in the basement of the Natural History Museum because they can't put it on a floor that has anything. There's like a, a floor because it would oh, fall through because it's shit. so heavy. Oh, like no. The tank itself is he- heavier than the squid and it's massive. It's absolutely massive. It like stretches all the way down this like massive long corridor. And I really want it's to see amazing. It. Uh, yeah, we should sign up for it. It's called the Spirit Collection Tour, is and Ooh. it take they take you down into the basement through all of the all the things that are like pickled specimens of stuff. All like it's, it's that's why it's called the Spirit Collection because loads of things are like in literally in spirits, like pickled in alcohol. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. That's so. And they've got love to Charles that. Darwin's tortoise as well. Oh, mm. cute. It's very fun. Love to see it. Love a giant squid. Let's visit the giant squid. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. There is another thing here where it's mentioned that people have, have heard like voices and, and things in this fog. Um, mm. So it seems to be a bit of a mystical fog going on. And then, then another man overhears them talking about Grumman and comes to join like your classic local pub. He's the man with the lemming demon. Yeah. <laughs> and me and Faye both had to Google what lemmings look like because we realised we weren't sure. And the answer yeah. is they're really cute. They're, they're like so a cute. little spherical hamster. They're so cute. What's the thing? Isn't it uh, a game? Like where lemmings like walk off a yeah. cliff or whatever. That's how I know them. But they look like weird little people. And it's like a mm. turn of phrase being like, yeah. Or like calling somebody a lemming is being like, oh, you yeah. just follow what everyone else does. Does that come from a, from actual lemmings? Or do they do that? I think so. 
There is one myth that is held on tenaciously. Every few years, herds of lemmings commit mass suicide by jumping off seaside cliffs. Oh. Instinct, it is said, drives them to kill themselves whenever their population becomes unsustainably large. Whoa. It's if. Misconceptions. Oh. Lemmings have become subject to a widely popular misconception that they are driven to commit mass suicide when they migrate by jumping off cliffs. It is not deliberate. Oh my god, Rich, you fucking, you reeled me in. <laughs> it is not deliberate, but rather the result of their migratory behaviour, driven by... Oh, so they do do it. <laughs> You're reeling me in with all this shit. <laughs> it is a thing. Oh. But the myth is that they do it when their population becomes too high. They do it because of a migratory behaviour that is in their beings. <laughs> Poor lemons. I would never want to witness that. Can you imagine if you lived near where that happened? I'd be really sad if you just saw a bunch of lemmings walking off a cliff. Also, apparently part of the reason they do it is because they can swim and may choose to cross a body of water in search of a new habitat when populations do become too large. But in those, in many cases, they'll just see a body of water and be like, I can take that. <laughs> and then they can't because it's like a bigger than they thought. And then that's why they die. Oh no. Oh, bless them. Okay, they're a bit over-enthusiastic. I enjoy, though, that this man that is jumping onto the conversation, joining in with everyone else, that he's got the lemming demon. Love it. And then it's like, maybe that was what Phil was doing. He was like, oh, this guy, he just wants to be in with the crowd. Let's give him a lemming. Nice connection. Love it. Well done, Rich. That's why people listen to this podcast, for hot takes like that. Oh, yeah. Um, this guy with the lemon demon says that he definitely was a tartar and that he saw him having his head drilled. So this guy saw him being trepanned. And he has another tartar name that he can't remember right now. And he was a shaman, apparently. Which explains why, somebody says that explains why the like people who were helping him on his expedition were so obedient of him and like accepting these like tongue lashings as they were referred to as um so willingly or you know still paying attention to his word even though he was silly enough to walk into a trap and get his leg done in <laughs> like you'd think that maybe he wouldn't be able to boss people around from the back of a sledge but he was perfectly capable of it yeah <laughs> i will point out that there's loads of like places and stuff named in this chapter on true form i did next to no research into the place names apart from one and it was because they keep mentioning Yenisei, the Yenisei River. It's in Russia. That's the only thing that I googled. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Round of applause for Faith's excellent research. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? True to form, I didn't research any of the geography either because I'm not going to lie, geography is not my fave subject and it's not my strong suit. So it's not go. my bag, baby. It's, it's not our bag, it. baby. At all. It's not my bag. <laughs> Mm-mm. I agree. Same. What is my bag is I did double check what the trepanning drill looked like mm. so i was like oh i think i know what one of those is with the um they're saying it was a bow drill and it's a very clever thing which is totally a way that you could use to like they're saying to make fires with and it's you like a a bent branch or piece of wood with string stretched like like a bow and arrow mm. mm-hmm. but then there's a bit of wood or whatever it is with a sharpened end that is kind of like looped through the string. So like the string goes around it, coils around it. Right. And then if you hold the pointy bit of wood still, you can move the bow backwards and forwards and the string 
will make the will make it spin backwards and forwards. So you do a sawing motion, and that makes a wow. drilling motion from the the stick, and that can either be used to like make friction to make a fire, or spend two days drilling through somebody's skull. Do you know? What? I feel like I've not really. I've just kind of like accepted like trepanning as as being this thing, obviously because it is a thing that people do. But I just haven't really thought about how fucking painful it must be to to have that done. It's just never like came into my brain because like obviously I'm assuming that there's not anesthesia and things like that uh, in the time that this was done. So it must be fucking painful. Yeah, it's one of those where you go like, is it? Maybe you just dissociate after a while or it's one of those things where like when you're like halfway into a big tattoo and you kind of don't really feel anything anymore because it's all the same. Everything's all the same level of pain. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what I feel about 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't feel anything anymore. <laughs> when you're halfway into the shittest year of ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So we get some more on Grumman here and it's just kind of more about how like you were saying about him being a shaman and how people kind of obey him in a way, I suppose, right? And how he swears like a sailor. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it says there was a witch who wanted him for a lover, but he turned her down. And then it says, is that so? Said Lee, thinking of the beauty of Serafina Pecola. Mm-hmm. Oh, Serafina. Oh. Yes. My, my, note, my note says, Lee fancy Serafina, cute. <laughs> He d- we know he does. I she know. gave him that flower. He's there. He <laughs> knows that he could booty call anytime he wants. <laughs> oh, no, but I mean, does Serafina like Lee or does she only have eyes for Scardi? She asked him question. if he had any children. She 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 asked the questions. She gave him <laughs> the flower. She's true. free to date whoever she wants. And if she wants to see both Lee, if she wants to be polyamorous with Lee and Ruta, I'm here for it. I'm saying, yeah, I'd love to see that. Uh, also, have we had Serafina's age before? Because this must mean she's over 300 at least. Because you know, I think perhaps. But interestingly, later this chapter we get Ruta's age, and we find out mm-hmm. Ruta is significantly older than Serafina, which is also interesting. Yeah, a thing that I noted that I thought was a bit odd is the rhetoric around rejecting a witch yeah i agree the the seal hunter says he shouldn't have done that a witch offers you her love you should take it if you don't it's your own fault if bad things happen to you it's like having to make a choice a blessing or a curse the one thing you can't do is choose neither and i just think basically i really don't like it because if it's true and it is generally like the case that if you reject a witch bad things will happen to you that's fucking horrible and that puts like a horrible pressure on anyone that's ever approached by a witch and i'm not here for it i'm not here for that like coercive level of control that exists within that dynamic but also i'm not here for the prejudice that is if you reject a witch you'll get cursed if it's all based on like mythology and superstition and you can't double cross a witch because you got to watch out for those sneaky women so like either way i'm not here for it (laughs) if it's true or if it's not (laughs) no i agree i i put a note that was something very similar in the sense that like if it's true then it's really icky (laughs) for want of a better term it takes out we talked about consent uh last chapter or the chapter before around lyra reading the alethiometer and this is also another issue of consent it's like if you say no to a witch then 
bad things are going to happen to you, that's not good. And would you say yes to a witch just so that she wouldn't do these bad things to you? Like, no, it not is into that. a real abuse of a power dynamic, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. that's, yeah, that feels really icky. But if it's all, yeah, and if it's not true and it's just that's a assumption held by men, that's also icky and like a shit prejudice to have against witches so it's like well yeah it's interesting because we haven't actually seen a lot of men or anyone really talk that much about the witches in terms of like we've heard like people say "Ooh, the witches are like amazing and they've helped us and they've done this and they've done that but we haven't heard like your average man down the pub talk about like what a witch is and what a witch does and like have that kind of like background to it as well so we don't really know like we haven't had much information so we can't really draw a line either either way on that one mm. if it's if this is the average man down the pub then i'm yeah no we, we don't love to see it no like, we're very not. conflicted <laughs> we are because it's tough right because like obviously we love the witches so we want to take their side but if it's true then it's a really really fucking shit thing for them to do and also we know that in this case it is potentially true because we met the witch a couple of chapters ago who said, I got rejected by this guy and I want to kill him. And that's really uncool on her part because she's perpetrate she's perpetuating a stereotype that already exists about her people and it's not cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then maybe it's not even a stereotype. Maybe it's just something that they do and that they are proud to do do you know what i mean it might not even be a stereotype it might just be something that they do that's not cool either no exactly none of this is cool <laughs> we don't like it why did you write it phil <laughs> we don't know what to do we don't know what to do <laughs> witches should just stick with witches that's that's the only way that the power dynamic is fair and consent can definitely be and like achieved in a way that we know is not tainted by this weird ass assumption <laughs> yeah i do i do like in this bit though that lee is is being quite kind about it like he's like these like fucking lads are like oh like bloody hell i can't believe he said no to a witch i wouldn't have done that blah 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 and then lee's like oh well he might have had a good reason like maybe he's faithful to another woman not that that's the only good reason that he could have for that but i like how lee is like actually he, there might be a good reason for that for why he did that yeah which, pop a pin in. I don't know if that's too big of a spoiler to say pop a pin in for. Get like half a pin out and tentatively <laughs> put it near this page. <laughs> mm. Mm. A thing I thought was odd. So Lee, they talk about witches. Lee mm. mentions that he was curious about the this idea that Grumman has access to some kind of magical object that provides protection to anyone who holds it and if anyone had heard about that. And the seal hunter says, oh yes, I've heard that too, but he didn't have it himself, he just knows where it is and when somebody tried to make him tell them about it, he killed them. And then they get distracted talking about his demon. So it's interesting that Lee knows that he's kind of on the right track and there's a seed of truth in his thing and that finding Grumman will help him find his mission. But also they just move on really quick because none of them know what an osprey is. I mean, I can't say I really knew what one was before I read this book, but I'm not, I don't really know that much about animals. <laughs> I just find it surprising because like everyone seems to have demons of like all sorts of different shapes and sizes and probably because of people's demons being a thing, I would have thought most people have a, like 
a much wider vocabulary of animals that they understand. Also, just it caught my eye that an osprey is a fish eagle. So you Mm -hmm. would think because of where they are and they have a lot of fishermen and seal hunters that they would have seen osprey around. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so that is interesting. Hmm. I just thought it was odd that he was like, oh yeah, he just had this weird eagle and then the barman is literally just like yes it's an osprey i don't know if he he was just this one guy just doesn't understand ospreys and everyone else is like oh yeah an osprey cool that makes sense yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. i love that the barman's butting in he's yeah he's also listening to the entire conversation which is great and very classic village pub vibes Mm -hmm. there's an interesting bit here where they're talking about what happened to him and like oh he's been shot and they're like no like he got beheaded uh and then the barman says no your birth wrong and i know because i heard it from an inuit who was with him and then that made me think last chapter we were talking about inuit and the word eskimo and how it was used in the last chapter uh, and we were wondering whether they would change it to inuit in different versions of the book so i was looking into it because personally like excuse my ignorance but i didn't know the differences between the two words Uh, i found an article and it says lawrence kaplan from the alaska native language center at the university of alaska uh, fairbanks explained the words eskimo and inuit do not mean the same both names refer to the indigenous people of the northern circumpolar region which embraces parts of alaska in the u.s siberia and russia canada and greenland Now, in some contexts, the word Eskimo may not be specific enough as it refers to different groups of people of this region of the world, such as the Inuit and the Yupik. On top of the misnomer, Eskimo has been considered a derogatory term as it was thought to mean eater of raw meat, while Inuit translates to the people, the latter being a more acceptable term. Oh yeah, so this article kind of goes into the, the use of each word and like when... Eskimo stopped being used and Inuit started to be used and it's kind of gone into that. It's quite interesting. I'll link it in the description. Possibly influenced by some of these sociolinguistic issues, the two words have suffered notorious changes in use over time. To exemplify this, we asked Google to calculate the frequency of appearance of the words Eskimo and Inuit in English books. Eskimo was commonly used up until the 1990s, the moment in which the word Inuit became more common. To some of us, this was probably sometime back in the 90s or even in the noughties, time in which we were told or read somewhere that these two words did not mean exactly the same and that we had to be wary about the way we use them. Uh, If we look at the frequencies of usage today, it seems that we learned our lesson as the word Inuit is more often used. I wondered if it was a deliberate decision from Phil to have John Perry in his letters to home use Eskimo and have the people from Lyra's world use Inuit because consistently throughout this chapter they've used Inuit and I wonder if that's a perhaps because it's all people that are actually interacting with these people on a regular basis and know their preferred terms or if it's Phil doing his thing where he's like some worlds use one word and some worlds use another word for like similar things so Scoresby's asking more questions about like what Grumman was doing in the area and we find out that he was studying starlight and the aurora, which is a very Asriali thing to be doing. He had, His area of interest is very similar to, to perhaps Asriel's, but also that his uh, he was interested in like ancient ruins, which is very interesting. 
we find out that in order to know more, Lee will probably have to visit the nearby, or not so nearby, observatory, which is somewhere that Grumman probably would have visited because it's like a scientific research centre, basically, and that was what he was into. The guys want to know why Lee's looking for Grumman, and Lee's like, oh, he owes me money. Oh, that explanation was so satisfying that it stopped their curiosity at once. I don't find that explanation satisfying at all. I'd be like, what for? What'd you do? Did you beat him at poker? Did did he, like, wreck your car? Tell me. <laughs> I want to know. I think it's probably because they know Lee really well. I don't know, it just sounds fitting that a lot of people would owe him money. So I feel like that might be an explanation that they've heard before from him. And they're just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Phillips decided this is a satisfying explanation. I'm going to write it in that everyone is satisfied by that explanation so nobody can question whether it's a flimsy explanation or not because I've written down that it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so they start talking about the changes in the world and the seal hunter says that you can sail right up into that new world and Lee says there's a new world. Yes, there is. You can like, this uh, seal hunter is saying that you can sail right up to it and see everything like in the sky and as soon as the fog clears everyone will see it they're basically just saying stanislaus is dead so lee's not gonna get his money and then they remember his tartar name how would you pronounce this rich i'm gonna let you do it first how did they say it in the audiobook uh a couple of different ways actually in the audiobook uh someone says Jopari. someone says Japari. the person doing like lee's accent is doing like a quite a thick texan cowboy accent vibe uh, he's like, Jopari, <laughs> Jopari. Um, so it's in a couple of different ways. And the, uh, later on, the Inuit guy that is giving Umak, the Inuit Umak. guy who's giving Lee a lift, says like, Jopari. So. Hmm. His Tartar name is Jopari, or however you want to say it. And then Lee goes to the observatory and he gets taken there. By a lovely man called Umak, who is very unhelpful, but really endearing. <laughs> yeah. He's helpful, obviously, because he takes him where he needs to go, which is great. And I appreciate that he just sits around and waits for him for like three or four hours. Oh my god, can you imagine hiring a taxi and being like, can you just wait for like four hours for me to do my thing? Bless him. So he's helpful in that sense, but in terms of his words, he is not super helpful at all. Oh, I think he's kind of helpful. I mean, I love it. That's why I said it's endearing that he should, because he's kind of like, maybe it's this thing, maybe it's that, but maybe it's not at all. And it's like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the riddles. <laughs> Aw, I love that his demon is a little Arctic fox. Yeah, that's really cute. So we learn here that the sky is opened before. He says, sky fall open and spirits move between this world and that world. All the lands move. The ice melt, then freeze again. The spirits close up the hall after a while, seal it up, but witches say the sky is thin there, beyond the northern lights. And then this is the first time in the chapter that somebody mentions war. Uh, Lee asks him what's going to happen, and Umak says, same thing as before, make all same again, but only after big trouble, big war, spirit war. So we're starting to get these like feelings of of war, like peppered in throughout this chapter at least. And then Umak's like, I'm not telling you anymore, sauce. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. They get to the observatory. Well, they get to the past the observatory. Lee has to go the rest of the way alone because it is too windy for the sledge, which is fair enough. So yeah, he literally just sets up a little fire for himself, I guess, and like sits and waits for four hours or more. Ugh, bless. 
Lee hikes up the hill with Hester in his jacket because it's adorable. And I love that image of him hiking up the hill with her cuddled in his jacket to stay warm. The fog like reveals the observatory briefly and then conceals it again. So you can tell that the fog is so thick that you can't really see what's in front of him particularly. He gets chatting to some astronomers when he arrives who are all like super keen to chat to him because they're basically probably have cabin fever being stuck in there together for so long and they can't use their telescopes because it's so foggy and so they're just like super if we thought the men at the bar were gossipy bitches (laughs) then we thought wrong because these guys win the gossip trophy i think they're like super keen to receive and share all the information Mm -hmm. yeah they're just like i know i've heard that name before i can tell you and then they start talking about one of them thinks that he's an englishman the other one thinks he's german basically i think what we find out in this chapter we do obviously find out more about grumman japari whatever you want to call him but he's still a mystery we still don't know if any of this shit is true it's one of those things where we find out that he is a mysterious and legendary figure essentially because there are so many stories and all of them are different enough that you wouldn't think they could all be true, which is, yeah, it's really interesting. It, we come to find out that he would call himself a paleoarchaeologist. Uh, someone's like, oh, why would you call it a paleoarchaeologist? Archaeologist, that just means like old, old. And he's like, yeah, but it means because he's studying older stuff than normal old, archaeology. Old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. They mention that he's really interested in stuff that they think is like frozen for hundreds of thousands of years. I think in a way that draws a great parallel between the skull that Lyra sees that the alethiometer tells her is older than they think it is. I think it's the same like time difference that we're talking it about. It is, yeah, with around 30,000 years, right? Grumman's study, yeah. This made me think because it says he's looking for remains of civilizations from around 30,000 years ago. And then the director's like, nonsense, utter nonsense, the man was pulling your leg. Civilization's 30,000 years old, ha. Huh? Where is the evidence? So this means that Lyra's world is super new, right? Compared to ours, because like civilization for our world goes back millions and millions of years. Yes, but I think there's more like the, a different point of discovery in Lyra's world. We probably thought the earliest civilization we could find information about was the Romans until we found the people that came before that and then the people that came before that. And like every time we discover something frozen in ice that's older than we think, we're like, whoa! You think that both worlds are the same age, if you want to put it that way, but Lyra's world just haven't discovered as much as we have in our world at that point. Either that or like it's only a hundred years behind or something. Especially in terms of like technology and stuff where they're at in Lyra's world. If you compared them at whatever like year this is, if it's the 90s in our world, compared what they'd found, like I'm pretty sure in the 90s we knew that civilization went back millions of years, whereas they only know that it goes back 30,000 years. And even then that guy is like, what the fuck? How can it go back 30,000 years? Yeah, interesting. I I kind of read it as like, oh, their world must be new, but you make a good point in the sense that they just might not have discovered as much as as we had in our world at that time. What I did look up was the fact that, so Grumman is insistent that he would find evidence of an earlier civilization, specifically in the frozen areas of the world because of the magnetic pole shift. According to Grumman, the Earth's magnetic fields changed dramatically at various times in the past, and the Earth's axis moved too, so that temperate areas became icebound. And that means that's why he's looking for things buried in the ice, because of the shift of the world. And I was looking up about our world's magnetic pole changes 
because apparently we've had quite a few. <laughs> the rate of reversals in the Earth's magnetic field has varied wildly over time. 72 million years ago, the field reversed. See, that's older than 30,000 years. 72 million. <laughs> Whether there was civilization at that time. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I had to Google it, by the way. I did not know when uh, humans were a thing, and apparently, or when civilization was a thing. And apparently, six million. it's been six million years since humans started standing upright. So there you go. There we go. In a four million year period, there were 10 reversals of the magnetic poles, and 17 reversals have taken place in the span of three million years. If you look it up, you can just see loads of information on when we have had reversals in the fields. I just find it really interesting that we've flipped about so much and apparently like there's loads of articles that are like when are we gonna flip again? <laughs> What's it mean for us if that happens? Bit of chaos for a bit. The magnetic field will not vanish completely uh, but many poles might form chaotically in different places during reversal until it stabilizes again. So instead of having a very clear north and south they might shift around as whatever the earth's core is doing is doing its thing until they like reset themselves in the other way up i guess wow the more you know so after they have that conversation like we get a bit more information on him one of them says but he came out of nowhere i mean no one had known him as a student or seen any of his previous work that pin that we snapped in half we could put the other half of the pin in this mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They carry on talking for a bit. Uh, Hester says to Lee, check out the Skraling, Lee. The Skraling had spoken very little. Lee had thought he was naturally tacky. Taciturn. But prompted by Hester, he casually glanced, glanced across during the next break in the conversation to see the man's demon, a snowy owl, glaring at him with bright orange eyes. Well, that was what owls looked like, and they did stare... <laughs> But Hester was right, and there was a hostility and suspicion in the demon that the man's face showed nothing of. I love that Lee's like, well, that's just what owls look like, isn't it? <laughs> is it owl. staring at me, or is it just an owl? I don't know. <laughs> this bit's actually really fucking sinister, right? That basically what we learn is his scrailing is wearing a ring with the church's symbol engraved on it, meaning that he is a employee of the magisterium. And we learn that every philosophical research establishment had to include on its staff a representative of the magisterium to act as a censor and suppress the news of any heretical discoveries. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Just religion weeding its way into science again. Hate to see it. It's another little indicator of showing how the magisterium has a little grip everywhere you look. And then Lee asks about dust. He just drops the D-bomb. <laughs> right? But like, he's, I know he like even thinks about Lyra before he says it, but like, he's pulling such a fucking Lyra at this point. Like, just dropping the D-bomb, as you said. Why would he even bring it up? Is he literally just trying to perk the bear? I mean, definitely. I love the description of it. Instantly a silence fell in the stuffy little room and everyone's attention focused on the scrailing, though no one looked at him directly. Just, yes, that attitude of like, oh no, we know someone said something that upset someone, we can't look at them, but you know that that's the person that everyone's not looking at. We've been in those rooms before. <laughs> Lee's like, oh, I, I'm sorry. Did I say something that's forbidden? Oops. <laughs> Oops. He says oh coquettishly. So sorry. And then um, <laughs> the church guy's like, uh, where did you hear about this? And then Lee tries to play it off as if he just like, he tries to like, again, pull an absolute liar and be like, oh, I'm... 
I'm just an aeronaut. I don't know anything of these things. Somebody mentioned it and it just sounded like it was the same kind of thing. And it's like, oh, all right. Then why would you bring it up? It just makes it's no sense. It's literally like <laughs> almost like a mirror of the conversation where Lyra brings up dust with Mrs. Coulter and then plays it off as having overheard it from a scholar in the corridor and recognising that it was similar. Like, Yeah, so then... They, like, have a little conversation about what it is and the Australians basically like, don't fucking worry about it. It has no significance at all. And then Lee decides it's time to leave because he doesn't want to keep Umak waiting any longer. And I say, good on you, Lee. You've already left him for a long time. Go back. Go yeah, back now. Yeah, poor Umak. He's just waiting there with his little fox and his cup of coffee. He heads out. And then when they're walking down the path, the owl demon tries to grab at Hester. So the Australian has come out to play. <laughs> One might say. Poor Hester. I mean, great Hester. She just presses herself into the snow and completely gets missed. And there's a great little line that is, Hester could fight. Her claws were sharp too. And she was tough and brave. And yes, we love tough, brave Hester with her sharp claws. (laughs) Absolutely. I fucking love Hester. And she's there like behind Julie and she's like watching out for him and stuff. And Lee takes out his gun and he shoots the Skralin in the leg. This is really bad because usually I don't like violence especially guns i don't like guns at all but the, the line where it says lee scoresby cocked his pistol and held it to the man's head my note is just hotly <laughs> hot love to see it i'm sorry i don't usually like guns i don't know what it is about lee with a gun that i enjoy yeah you were really into the like when he was like polishing his gun on <laughs> yorick's armor as well i just I don't know what's she happening she just loves to a me. gun toting cowboy to this day apparently yeah i guess it's because we know that he's not a gratuitous gun user he's only doing it in self-defense or in moments when it is necessary he's not like he's a good murderer <laughs> he's the good kind of murderer just he's like yorick kind of exactly. <laughs> yeah he tries to get the scrolling guy to talk and also is just like you idiot why did you run after me like i didn't want any of this to happen like what is wrong with you why would you chase me but now that you're here like at least tell me something do you know what else i I found quite hot where the skralian says you are an enemy of the church lee scorsby yes Yes, he is is. i put a note on by their fruits you shall know them by their questions you shall see the serpent gnawing at their heart anytime somebody starts quoting scripture and they're a baddie you know that well, if you didn't think they were a baddie, you know they are now. Just casually dropping some scripture into conversation. No thanks. No, Not here for gross. it. I don't like it. Not here like it for the look on this guy's face. We know Lee's a good person because even though this guy's just tried to kill him and just been a full-on intense evil guy and he's already said, like, I've already, like, dobbed you in, like, I've already sent a, but the messenger bird, like, they're going to know that you're here, they're going to... We know you're an enemy of the church. Lee sees that he's shot this guy and he's like, oh, crap, this guy's bleeding out. But let go of me and I'll make a tourniquet. I'll try and save you. Like, I don't want to have killed you. If you could not die, that would be great. And the guy is literally like, I'm glad to die. I shall have the martyr's palm. You will not deprive me of that. And like, just dying out of spite is... (laughs) 
is a play, that's for sure. It's a fucking move. It is a fucking move. Uh, it made me think a little bit of um, the witch dying and calling for Yamba Aka. Like, the the opposite end of that spectrum is this guy just being like, you know what, fuck you, I'm going to die. But also, I guess the great thing about a villain is that they don't know that they're bad and they think that they're good and that everything they're doing is good. And it's just that by the moral compass of the reader reading the book, you know that they're bad and they're like dedication to it. So this guy very much is, he thinks he's the same as the witch calling for Yambayaka. He thinks he's dying for a cause. And that's why his face looks so ecstatic when he dies. Lee had once seen a painting in which a saint of the church was shown being attacked by assassins. While they bludgeoned his dying body, the saint's demon was borne up by cherubs and offered a spray of palm, the badge of a martyr. The Skraling's face now bore that same expression as the saint's in the picture, an ecstatic straining towards oblivion. Lee dropped him in distaste. I love Lee's disdain for the church. I'm so here for it. And Hester tuts, Hester clicks her tongue. <laughs> Yes, Hester. <laughs> but yeah, so much. that's a really intense image. And also, love the idea. I hadn't even considered the idea of like classical paintings and classical portraiture, including demons, which is silly because we had this conversation about the girl in the ermine that inspired Philip Pullman to write about demons. But yeah, the idea of like cherubs carrying this person's demon up. Oh. <laughs> it might be like a, a weird situation, but like just... I think that painting would be really cute. Aside from the, if you take the people out of it and just have the cherubs carrying the demon, <laughs> look really cute. And then Hester um, has a really good idea, I think, by taking the man's ring. And Lee's a bit like apprehensive about it at first. He says, "We ain't thieves, are we?" And she says, "No, we're renegades." Oh yeah, <laughs> they're little badasses. <laughs> oh, it's such a good thing to do, though. That like, I agree that. It's a good thing to do in terms of like, it's going to might come in handy later down the line. You never know. You never know. He just rolls the body off, off the cliff. It fell for a long time before he heard any impact. Lee had never enjoyed violence and he hated killing, although he'd had to do it three times before. So he's only killed four times. Yeah, you know he hasn't killed much because he's kept count. I'm pretty sure Yorick probably has not kept count because no, he I is don't an think he has. absolute murderer. <laughs> So they head back to the sledge and he asks Umak about Grumman. And then this is what made me laugh as much as I love Umak. He's so not helpful in this bit. It's hilarious. Aww. Like He does give like little bits of information. I'm not going to lie. I feel like for me, what he's doing is saying, it's not my place to tell. Yeah, I know. But I just find that hilarious. Like, especially the line where he's like, Lee says, his tribe, you mean the people who initiated him? Who drilled his skull? Yes, you better ask them. Maybe he not dead. Maybe he is. Maybe neither dead nor alive. It's like, thanks, Umak. Thanks for that. <laughs> I like it. I like him. I'm not saying that I don't like it. I think but it's also hilarious. like it's great because he's like, Lee asks, how can he be neither dead nor alive? And Umak says, in spirit world. Maybe he in spirit world. Already I say too much. Say no more now. So you know that there's information. He's like, he's being as helpful as he can be be while being respectful or secretive or whatever he needs to be in order to be loyal to whoever he's loyal to but he's being as useful as he can be and I have respect for that but I know what you mean like it's funny that his answers are all very vague but he still <laughs> pointed Lee in the very correct direction. No he did and I appreciate him a lot he's done a lot this chapter I enjoyed that he waited for Lee I enjoyed that he's given him little bits of information and I think it's hilarious 
how like how he speaks in riddles, and I fucking love that. I'm here for him. No bad blood for me and Umak between me and Umak. We're, Absolutely we're not. And <laughs> together they head towards the docks so that Lee can find a ship to go in search of Jopari's tribe. Now we move to see Brutus Guardian Serafina. Yay! Yay! Our fave babes flying through yeah. the skies together. Woohoo! They're flying through the skies. They end up in the world that Chittagatse is in. It's fucked up there too. <laughs> yes. Basically, yes, it is. <laughs> Asriel's fucked up this world as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, he has. Oh, there's a description here of um, of spectres, and we had a conversation about this in uh, one of our TV show episodes, and they are translucent. You are correct, Amondo. I had envisioned them as being black. I don't know why. So when I saw it in the TV show, I was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. But no, it says here, doesn't it? It says... It might have been a good land to live in, but for the spectral forms that drifted like mist over the grasslands and congregated near streams and low-lying water. In some lights, they were hardly there at all, just visible as a drifting quality in the light, a rhythmic evanescence, well, like veils transparency turning before a mirror. The witches had never seen anything like them before and mistrusted them at once. So yeah, well done you. But unlike the band Evanescence, spectres <laughs> do not wake you up inside. In fact, they do the polar opposite. <laughs> oh my god, amazing. <laughs> had um, you been stewing on that one since since you read it? Had you written it down? I had not actually. It only came to me when you said Evanescence and then giggled about it because <laughs> you are a child. <laughs> I am um, a child. Also, for me, the note that I made was that... Um, it's interesting because referring to the spectres as like veils of transparency or evanescence, that is very similar to some of the descriptions we've had of the Aurora mm. in the first book to do with veils of evanescence. We've definitely had ev- evanescence in there before because I've definitely laughed about it before. Definitely. So. <laughs> I stand by my envisioning of the spectres. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, what happens next is that Serafina and Ruta witness a, an attack uh, from the spectres. There's a bunch of adults and a bunch of kids below on the ground, like crossing and walking along, and they get attacked. The adults get attacked by the spectres, which is just it's just horrible. Yeah. So initially, they realise what's happening because there's two riders in the group on horses that they shout to say something about spectres being there and then they gallop away on their horses they just they fuck right off you get the impression that like seraphina and the witches are kind of judging that because they've not stuck around to help their comrades they've just run off it's mentioned earlier that seraphina says alive or dead they're full of malice i can't feel that from here and unless i knew what weapon could harm them i wouldn't go closer than this so the witches are hanging back they're not helping out either because they don't know what the deal is and so they're kind of flying at a safe distance to kind of watch what's happening. And what's happening is horrible. Ruta's guard, kind of focuses in on one old woman who sat on a cart with two little children with her. And she like pulls the children in front of her to try and like hold them up to the spectres instead. And Ruta's guard is disgusted and angered by it and thinks of it as cowardice. But the children like pull free and run away. And then the woman gets spectred. Serafina witnesses an attack on a man that's trying to cross the river. He's got a child on his back and he he gets spectred and the child is crying and the man just stops still, waist deep in a river. He drops it he drops the kid in the river. Yeah, he like drops his arms and Seraphine is horrified and so to save the child she intervenes. In this passage, 
it mentions the legend of, of the vampire and it's got a Y in it and it just made me think of Andrew from Buffy where he's like, the vampire? Yes. <laughs> I was going to read this actually. Read it out, Rich. Read it out. Because it's just a bloody horrible passage anyway. There was a father with his child who had tried to ford the river to get away, but a spectre had caught up with him. And as the child clung to the father's back, crying, the man slowed down and stood waist deep in the water, arrested and helpless. What was happening to him? Serafina hovered above the water a few feet away, gazing, horrified. She had heard from the travellers in her own world the legend of the vampire. <laughs> uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we love it. <laughs> And she thought of that as she watched the spectre busy gorging on something, some quality the man had, his soul, his demon perhaps. For in this world, evidently, demons were on the inside, not outside. She's noted that just as well as Lyra has, and I love it. His arms slackened under the child's thighs and the child fell into the water behind him and grabbed vainly at his hands, gasping, crying, but the man only turned his head slowly down with perfect indifference at his little son drowning beside him. Wow. It's intense. Seraphina obviously swoops down to save the child because she's great, but she hears a cry from Ruta. Be careful, sister, behind you. And Seraphina felt just for a moment a hideous dullness at the edge of her heart and reached out and up for Ruta Scardi's hand, which pulled her away from danger. They flew higher, the child screaming and clinging to her waist. It's so intense and ah, it really is. It's interesting to me, I suppose I'd forgotten this, but the, the spectres can affect witches i don't know why i just thought part of me might think that they were because they're witches they wouldn't be affected by them but clearly because it nearly gets seraphina and she feels that initial like horrendousness they do yeah well i wonder if it's we're seeing that the witches are that the spectres are sucking some kind of life or some kind of vitality from the humans and who's more vital than a witch like they're so full of life they're so full of like curiosity and soul and all this kind of stuff that like i'm not surprised that they can be affected too intense and like something from a horror film is what i will say phil does a really good job yeah he does i really like it i like how just horrible it is it's just awful isn't it the guy dropping the kid in the water and the kid's just drowning brutal i'd be interested to compare the description that sort of how seraphina felt with the briefest touch from a specter to the description in Harry Potter of how Harry feels with Dementors. Because I think that's an overwhelming sadness, whereas with Serafina, it seems like an underwhelming emptiness. Yeah, I feel like they're very similar, because I feel like there's a lot of emptiness involved with the Dementors, and also cold, right? They suck the warmth out of places, so everyone's always, like, freezing cold. I feel like I should know the description. It's a similar thing, isn't it? Like, I don't know if Phil did this but i know obviously jk rowling as much as i hate to say name the dementors are supposed to represent depression i don't know if it's the same like phil had the same idea for the spectres but i think because obviously in harry potter we learn through harry how it feels not to have the dementors kiss obviously but to have the dementors come in to the room and kind of feed on you like without it being the case but obviously we would never get to see from an adult who has been spectered like what it actually feels like so realistically it really is only that line from Serafina that gives us a little bit of a insight into what it feels like. And it is it is, it is pretty horrifying. Essentially the entire group, except for the children, have now been spectred. The spectres having gorged themselves and being full drift away and Serafina goes up to a woman um, who was sitting on the grass, a strong healthy looking woman whose cheeks were red and whose fair hair was glossy. 
which I guess Phil's making a point of saying like she is health like healthy bodily. They've not taken anything from her body. What they've taken from is her soul or her mind or her whatever. Seraphina shakes the woman by the shoulder and the woman like looks at her with like nothing in her eyes. Her eyes were vacant. And when Seraphina pinched the skin of her forearm, she merely looked down slowly and then away again. And just the horror of all of that interaction. I love the images of the kids like trying to like grab their parents is really heartbreaking. Like I think Phil's done a really good job of kind of laying out this like decimation left behind by the spectres that the witches are now interacting with. We then meet the horse people. <laughs> yeah, the horse people. Yeah, they come back. Um, and they explain that they, they do that for a reason because they need ad- some adults to survive because they need to look after the kids. So in most of the groups in this place, they have adults that are on horseback who will shout to let people know that spectres are there and then ride away as soon as they come so that they can then look after the kids. One of the riders has come close to talk to Serafina. Serafina, he asks who Serafina is. She says she's Serafina Pecola. I am the queen of the witches of Lake Inara, witches in another world, BTW. What's your name? He says, my name is, and I know this from the audiobooks, it's not Joachim, which is what it looks like. It's Joachim or Joachim, the wine. And he says, witches, you say, do you treat with the devil? Which just made me throw back to last week's episode. And I'm like, witches then, do you kiss cat's bums? I love that her answer is, if we did, would that make us your enemy? I love that. I love that it's not like a yes or no. It's like, hmm, I'm intrigued about why you think that and what your, I suppose, what your morals are in this world and, like, what is the devil in this world and is is it even a bad thing? Like, who knows? Yeah, and he's like, oh, it might have done once, but times have cha- changed. So, like, devil worship is welcome. If you're not a spectre, you're in. Death to spectres. Exactly. Kill the spectres. Kill the fucking spectres. Yo, Jim. Yo, Kim. It's basically an exposition machine and we love him for it. <laughs> yes. Very true. Very true. He basically tells them all about the, their world, right? The world that Chittagatse is in. First, he t- tells them about spectres. He says there's no defense against them. Only the children children are untouched. And they mention angels, and this is the second time that angels have been mentioned in this book so far. Thorold mentioned them. Oh, I was thinking what was the first time. Thorold mentioned them, I think, because Serafina asks the same question that she asks here. She says, what are angels? And she asked Thorold that back in old chapter two, um, when Thorold was talking about the authority, etc. He says that angels have been flying over. They're not super common uh, anymore, but they have started to fly over more and then Seraphina's basically like if we camp with you and help you guard against the spectres will you tell us more about this world and these angels that you saw this is where the exposition machine starts basically also they just ditch the adults when we were asking in the tv show episode what happens to the grown-ups the answer is they just get ditched I guess that's the point at which you go yep okay so this is a re what essentially we're walking into here is a a really harsh post-apocalyptic landscape where essentially it's every person for themselves any group is just trying to survive and once you if you've been spectred they people can't afford to care for you because that's it and that's really really bleak really bleak it is super bleak but it's like what could they realistically have done there's not it sounds like there's not enough adults left to like do anything like they can't and the kids can't look after them it's not like they can make an establishment that houses them we learn that they can't do anything in this world anymore. They have to steal from other worlds because of the spectres. So they're in no position to care for 
anyone other than the people that they're immediately with that haven't been spectred. It's like a zombie apocalypse. It really is. And there's various points through this in which my notes say, I would very much like the Walking Dead style zombie apocalypse drama in a, in the world where the spectres exist. I want the drifting dead. <laughs> the drifting dead. <laughs> is what the dead. spectres are. <laughs> or something. <laughs> there's a sad quote here. The witches helped to move the wagons further along the road, over the bridge and away from the trees where the spectres had come from. The stricken adults had to stay where they were, though it was painful to see the little children clinging to a mother who no longer responded to them or tugging the sleeve of a father who said nothing and gazed into nothing and had nothing in his eyes. The younger children couldn't understand why they had to leave their parents. Their older ones, some of whom had already lost parents of their own and who had seen it before, simply looked bleak and stayed dumb. Serafina picked up the little boy who'd fallen in the river and who was crying out for his daddy, Reaching over Serafina's shoulder to the silent figure still standing in the water, indifferent, Serafina felt his tears on her bare skin. What a great chapter. What an uplifting chapter. Thanks, it's Phil. It's so uplifting. Thank you. I, I just had one note that was, um, the horsewoman who wore, who wore rough canvas breeches and rode like a man. Sounds hot. <laughs> totally, yeah. But then she's a bit of a dick to the kids. And I was like, oh, okay. I think she's doing what she got to do, right? She's already, she, it is mentioned that she dismounts the horse and like is caring for the children and tending to the children before they move camp it's more just that after they've moved camp i think she's busy doing all the other shit while this guy chats shit to witches <laughs> yeah she's like i'm doing all the fucking work here can you fucking help me basically yeah and he's just gonna sit by the fire and spin some yarns <laughs> but not literally because that might be useful <laughs> We learn a bit more about Chittagatse. It means the city of magpies, and I believe that is Italian. And that was also the name of the first episode of the TV series. So there you go. That's where they got that from. It mentions something that we popped a pin in a little while ago. It says... They're wondering how the spectres had got into the world. And it says, 300 years ago, it all went wrong. Some people reckon the Philosopher's Guild of the... Oh God, how would you say this, Rich? I always make you say it. Philosopher's Guild of the Torre degli Angeli? I'm just going to say the Tower of Angels. I'm trying to think how they said it in the audiobook. Torre degli Angeli? I don't know. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to skip over it and say it. Guild of the Tower of the Angels. In the city we have just left, they're the ones to blame. Others say it was judgment for some great sin, though I've never heard any agreement about what that sin was. But suddenly, out of nowhere, they came the spectres, and we've been haunted ever since. Basically, that tower in Chittagatse that we popped a pin in, there's some more shit going on with that. You can, like, look at the pin, but you can't take it out yet. Push it in a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. <maybe. laughs> the world that they're in, like, was great, and it was prospering, and everyone was living a great life until the spectres came and just ruined everything, because they can't do anything while the spectres are there. They can't do fundamental things like make money, run businesses, go to school, live lives, because... At any minute, somebody could get spectred, and if you're the boss of your business gets spectred, you don't have a job anymore. Like we said, they steal things from other worlds, and it says, oh yes, we know about other worlds. It's so nonchalant. Uh, oh yes, <laughs> oh, we yes. know. We know. Oh, you were surprised to find out there were other worlds? We've known all along. <laughs> we know. Yeah, it says the philosophers in the tower have a spell, which if you say it lets you walk through a door that isn't there and find yourself in another world. Some say it's not a spell, but a key that can open where there isn't a lock. Who knows? Whatever it is, it let the spectres in. I love that it says, the source of all the wealth in their world is the philosophers and what they steal. Gold and jewels, of course, but other things too, like sacks of corn. Or pencils. Pencils! Everybody likes to write and draw. 
Very valuable as a pencil. Then Ruta asks, why don't the spectres harm children? And he says that it's the greatest mystery of all. In the innocence of children, there's some power that repels the spectres of indifference. Is spectres of indifference their full name, do you think? I don't know, but I love it as a term. It perfectly describes what they do. It's a great band name. It is. Like Moxie and the Murderers. Oh my god, we could have like a full festival lineup <laughs> by the end of the series of like all the amazing bands that you could go and see. Moxie and the Murderers, Spectres of Indifference. They sound like a really gothic, like Cradle of Filth style band. Oh, you see, I was thinking like Moxie and the Murderers will be like punk 90s girl power, maybe a bit distillers vibes. And the Spectres of Indifference to me sound like The Cure or something. <laughs> Oh, sure. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's still on the goth vibe, I suppose, isn't it? But more like 80s, we're a little bit sad about life than like screaming, you know? (laughs) I could go either way. I don't particularly mind. (laughs) I think Cradle of Filth will be more like, that would be the Armoured Bears death metal band. (laughs) We just need to find a decent name for that that comes up in the book. Palace of Filth. (laughs) I mean, it really fucking truly was. Yeah, they don't know why the spectres don't harm children. There are lots of kids that are spectre orphans and that hire themselves out to adults to like go into towns and, and steal stuff, basically. Again, a great storyline for my The Walking Dead style TV series. Just putting it out there, Phil. Make a just a gutsy TV series. <laughs> oh wait, they were already making one. <laughs> spin-off, a spin-off, that's what you need. There used to be a balance between the amount of spectres and people in the world until a great storm recently and it brought hundreds of thousands of them. And then I thought to myself, the big tear didn't happen that long ago. It only happened like three days ago, four days ago. So, but like, it sounds like they've been living in this like world filled with hundreds of thousands of spectres for quite a while. Cause like, how would they have established spectre orphan children and stuff like that? But it sounds like they've been steadily increasing over the past 300 years. And it's just that the reason that, like, the city is freshly abandoned. Because if you think there was, like, still, like, risotto and stuff on the side, like, it looked relatively like it had been abandoned as a result of the storm when Will arrives in it. The storms made everyone, like, just flee. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. I just felt that, like, it, the way that he's been describing everything that's happened, it just feels like it's been happening for like years. It felt like there was hundreds of thousands of spectres for a long time because they're saying like spectre often children and like they'll hire children to go and look for food and supplies in a spectre ridden area. So it felt like there's been shitloads of spectres for a long time uh, rather than the like storm just bringing it in. Yeah, I guess it's the difference between like enough for it to be a blight upon the population and something you have to work out like protocols and systems for but is manageable-ish to fully evacuating a city because it's completely unmanageable it's like the different tiers of lockdown (laughs) yeah oh my god but then that's interesting again isn't it because if they've had like spectres for a long time and it's been manageable like he said and there have been like spectre orphan children in that time and all that kind of stuff why haven't they established had they established somewhere for the people that had been spectre to go like as in within the world where it was still inhabitable but the threat of the spectre was there what did they do with the spectred people then yeah well they might they might have had essentially care homes for those people but i guess when the spectres became 
an unmanageable amount they'd have had to ditch them. I love some of the descriptions of beforehand. It sounds very Venetian, talking about having like masquerade parties and people playing instruments on the street and it sounds very joyous and I love that Seraphina's like oh it sounds so much like our world and so different and I'm like it sounds like an amazing like amalgamation of Italy and Spain to me. <laughs> I'm just still on the fact that we can just fucking blame Asriel for everything that's going on. Yeah there's that. Absolutely. They were ha- they had a manageable amount of spectres until Asriel literally tore the world a new asshole. <laughs> like oh no let's cut that out that was far too aggressive. <laughs> why i like it <laughs> but he literally did didn't he fucking hell he did i'm keeping it i'm keeping it in sorry Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks azriel for making the spectres even worse now he says to them tell me about your world and they do they talk about like angels passing through and like how he wouldn't be surprised if people from their world had already found their way into his world from time to time because of those like doorways that those philosophers might have left open Mm -hmm. which for us now explains will's window and then we get to talking about angels interesting also so many great buffy references in this entire chapter because when seraphina asks of angels yokim says you want to know about angels very well their name for themselves is bene elim which i looked it up it is hebrew and translates to sons of god yeah i looked that one up too <laughs> so good at research. Some call them watchers too. Thank you, Giles. Giles. Oh. They're not beings of flesh like us, they're beings of spirit. Or maybe their flesh is finer drawn than ours, lighter and clearer. I wouldn't know, but they're not like us. They carry messages from heaven, and that's their calling. We sometimes see them in the sky passing through this world on the way to another, shining like fireflies way, way high up. On a still night, you can even hear their wing beats. I kind of love the idea of them being like the ultimate bird watchers spot <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah or like when you're keeping an eye out on the skies for shooting stars just like just keep an eye out for angels and you just like spot these like odd little yeah kind of like the idea of them is this like unusual far off phenomenon the angels in this in these books and the description that we get soon freak me the fuck out like i find i find like the concept of angels and like anything that is like large that has a face i find really freaky right there's a, i'm sure there's a name for it but you know i just got an image of you being absolutely terrified of the easter island heads <laughs> i no i am freaked out by them Are like you? and yeah christ the redeemer and like statue of liberty big statues that have faces freak me the fuck out and the angels the way that they're described gives me that same vibe i love that that's a thing i now know about you i didn't know that it has to be of a certain size though like if it was just like do you know like in london there are lots of like statues that are kind of like they're on like plinths and shit and they're like a little bit high up and but they're like more or less the size of a human person that's fine it has to be something that's massive that's human or got like a face no oh that's so interesting you see i thought you'd be more freaked out by like human-sized statues because for me especially an angel statue that brings up like doctor who weeping angels like vibes and that they were super creepy yeah no i can deal with um human-sized statues it's the fucking massive ones that i am not a fan of love it (laughs) i enjoy that he says oh angels are really rare but then also then tells this anecdote of a time that he saw a dead angel the vision of like when he sees the dead 
Angela, the injured one, that kind of creeped me out as well. Because I would not have wanted to walk walked out of the place that I'm in to just see a fucking injured or and or dead angel just laying across the floor. I just think it's interesting the way he describes it as being like, oh, they're so rare. Like we used to see them in the past and we never see them now. Oh, except for this one time when I heard this huge sky fight and then I left my hut that I was hiding in and there was an injured angel on the ground and I saw it up up really close and then looked away and then looked back and it was gone. But angels are really rare and you never really see them. But I saw them literally fighting. Why wouldn't you start (laughs) with the story of the like huge epic sky fight that you overheard while you hid in a hut and then actually physically seeing an angel up close so you know what they look like? Start with that. (laughs) Yeah, lead with that, lead with that. It's the most interesting part of the story. It mentions briefly that angels did have dealings with men and women in ancient days and that it is said that they had bred with us too, some say. That's something to know that angels can shag people if they want to, apparently. (laughs) For future reference, just in case it comes up. Who knows if it will. (laughs) He says that he's more and more seen them like fleets of mighty ships they see them all traveling towards the pole there seems to be like a definite we're seeing more angels they're all going in the same direction something is brewing and we don't know what another mention of a war in heaven that was thousands of year ago year year ago years ago that could be compared to the spirit war that um umak was mentioning before as well and then ruta asks why they're going towards the pearl is that where heaven is basically it says i don't know but the north of our world well that's the abode of spirits they say if angels were mustering that's where they'd go if they were going to make an assault on heaven i dare say that's where they'd build their fortress and sally out from interesting tiny sidebar of that the stars in this world were the same as theirs the milky way blazed bright across the dome of the sky do all the universes have the same sky or is that another thing like when lyra found those initials in Will's Oxford, and we were like, what the fuck? Or is it that all universes have the same basic configuration and they they are on a planet that is in the same place? Interesting, but also convenient, because it does mean that the witches can still navigate because the stars are in the same places in their world, so handy. (laughs) Yeah, and then Serafina does does a Lyra and says, did you ever hear of dust? And then he just brushes her off, really, doesn't he? He's like, dust? No, I assume you don't mean what we mean by dust. But then he's like, look, there's some angels. (laughs) Oh, look. <laughs> yes. And Rita Scardi is literally just like, right, I'm off then. I'm going to chase them. Bye. And uh, she kisses Serafina. Mm. They kissed. And Rita Scardi took her cloud pine branch and sprang into the air. Her demons, Sergei, Sergei, Sergei. Um, a blue throat, which is a very cute little bird with a blue throat, not a hawk like it is in the TV series, or a falcon of some kind, whatever it is. He sped out of the dark alongside her, and I kind of love that she is, it's a very Lyra move as well, just literally seeing something and running after it. Sure. Although, also, I don't really like that she wants to go after the angels because she thinks they're going towards Azrael. And it's like, oh, just leave them alone, for fuck's sake. I guess I'm more into her, like, springing into action than I am into her springing after Azrael, but I still like the springing (laughs) into action vibes. (laughs) Okay, she's off. She's gone. She's off. She's trying to find them. She doesn't want to lose sight of them. They're like super, super duper high up. It says, they shone not as if they were burning, but as if wherever they were and however dark the night, sunlight was shining on them. They were like humans, but winged and much taller. And as they were naked, the witch could see 
The three of them were male, two female. Their wings sprang from their shoulder blades and their backs and chests were deeply muscled. Interesting little description of them. I find it really interesting that Phil chose to gender them, especially because it then mentions later on that the only reason she saw them as human is because she expected to see a human figure and that if she were to see their true forms, it would look more like an architecture of ideas, which means that, again... I'm here for trans angels because it means that whatever that she is seeing as their gendered form is whatever they clearly embody within their architecture and their like being as opposed to like anything that is actually to do with a it's like a physical body it's all to do with what the soul is and they just exude that and that is what people see is what they expect to see I'm here for it I'm also here for a non-binary angel I kind of agree with that, but I kind of read it as being more like it was more on Ruta rather than how they were presenting to her. It was more of what she could comprehend in her head and that she, like, it was more of her projection of what she thinks that they would look like because she can't comprehend what they actually look like rather than them projecting it to her because she can't comprehend anything else. So she just sees humans or like beings that are like humans. Yeah, in, but I think they surely have some control over what she's able to interpret. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but I kind of read it. I, I swear there's like, there's something else that I've read or watched. Some kind of pop culture thing where it's very similar. Is it an angel? The powers that be, there's little, there's two, the man and the woman in the first season. Can't remember what they're called. That like, he goes to see. The oracles. Isn't that something similar? There's definitely a thing in Angel with... Not the powers that be, but the the higher ups, the like bosses showing up as like a panther. Gun sees them as a panther and Angel sees them as the little girl or something. And like it's to do with interpretation. Yeah, maybe that's what I was thinking of. But yeah, definitely something recently that has a similar vibe to the way that these angels are seen by at least Ruta. But yeah, maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it's her projection and theirs like mixing together to make this like really muscly human angel. (laughs) I am so intrigued to see how they're going to do these in the TV series. I assume they're not going to go for full-on nudity. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe not. No, probably not. No. It's on 8pm. They're not going to share dicks, are they? Yeah. I love the description of how they might actually look. Before we get there, I love that Ruta's just like, Angels, halt and listen to me. I am the witch Ruta Scardi and I want to talk to you. Yes, bitch. Yes. Love it. There's lots of really nice descriptions of them, actually, like... Says each angel being was distinctly an individual, and yet they had more in common with each other than any human than with any human she had seen. What they shared was a shimmering, darting play of intelligence and feeling that seemed to sweep over them all simultaneously. They were naked, but she felt naked in front of their glance. It was so piercing and went so deep. And this just made me think of like there are like a few people that I know or that I've interacted with over the years that when I talk to them, it feels like they're staring directly into my soul and it makes me feel really self-conscious when I speak to them. And it makes me think of this, when you feel like someone's eyes like piercing into your soul and you're like, oh, I can't even look at you. She's like, why Why are you making such direct eye contact with me? (laughs) In the audiobook, the angels are the most deadpan things you've ever heard and I love it. In fairness, that, that's the vibe I get, right? From the, like, where are you going? And again, they're, like, about as fucking helpful as Umak was, although we props to Umak. I'm not shitting on Umak. We're following a call. Whose call? A man's. Lord Asriel's? It may be. Why are you following his call? Because we're willing to. Thanks for nothing. The sassiest. Angels. The deadpan sassiest. I love it. But also, her audacity 
the audacity of Rutascardi. I love it that she's just like, well, wherever he is, you can guide me to him. And she's just like, well, you seem to think you're above me. So I'm going to treat you like you're beneath me. And we're just going to play it like that. And it's like, oh, okay, Ruta. She, she's the queen and she knows it. She knows it. I fucking love this next bit. Ruta Scardi was 416 years old with all the pride and knowledge of an adult witch queen. She was wiser by far than any short-lived human, but she had not the slightest idea of how like a child she seemed beside these ancient beings. Nor did she know how far their awareness spread out beyond her like filamentary tentacles to the remotest corners of universes she had never even dreamed of, nor that she saw them as human-formed only because her eyes expected to. If she were to perceive their true form, they would seem more like architecture than organism, like huge structures composed of intelligence and feeling. But they expected nothing else. She was very young. So it's like, she is there like, you will obey me. And they're there like, okay, kiddo. <laughs> yeah, literally like a bossy toddler. And you, you do what the toddler says, but the toddler's not in charge. <laughs> they're giving her the impression that they're doing what she says because actually what she's asking them to do they're going to do anyway so it's like they know that that's their journey and she's just along for the ride she's finding a way of saying can i tag along in a way where it sounds like at the end of the chapter oh my god and she's like and you'll be my god of honor like (laughs) yes yes Yes, bitch. Yes, queen. (laughs) I love the descriptions of them as more like architecture than organism. And I'm going to send you a link to an article that's like a bunch of images of like accurate drawings of angels or drawings of angels from like biblical things where they're not human form. They're like an unusual geometric pattern with an eye in the middle of it. And it's like made of clouds and wings. And they're really cool. They're really like kind of like weird Illuminati looking things sometimes, but also like badass weird structures are really cool that I will send to you because that very much reminds me of that. They fly throughout the night to find this man that may or may not be Lord Asriel. At some point they enter into a different world and those of you that have the images on your books will notice that it's changed from a knife to a little star? Would you call it a star? It's like a cross between a star and a snowflake for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. They dismissively, she's like, oh, I could feel that we changed worlds. Where's the window? Where's the boundary? And they're like, oh, they're invisible. We can see them, but you can't. And Ruta's like, all right, well, I might not be able to see it, but I've got better navigational skills than a bird. So I will just remember these mountains and I'll never get lost. So screw you for being snooty. (laughs) And then she hears an angel voice say, Lord Azrael's in this world and there is a fortress he's building. They had slurred and were circling like eagles in the middle airs. Ruta Scotty looked where one angel was pointing. The first faint glimmer of light was tinting the east through all the stars above shone as brilliantly as ever against the profound velvet black of the high heavens. On the very rim of the world, where the light was increasing moment by moment, a great mountain range reared its peak. Jagged spears of black rock, mighty broken slabs, and sawtooth ridges piled in confusion like the wreckage of a universal catastrophe. Fucking great description, Phil. Well done. But on the highest point, which, as she looked, was touched by the first rays of the morning sun and outlined in brilliance, stood a regular structure, a huge fortress whose battlements were formed of single slabs of basalt. Basalt? Basalt? Basalt. <laughs> so bad at word. Basalt. Thank you. Basalt. Half a hill in height and whose extent was to be measured in flying time. There's just this massive fucking fortress that, like, loads of different things are working on. There's, like, clanging hammers and shit. More angels going towards it. Okay, I have, like, a couple of points. One of them, this sounds totally like a description of Mordor. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
if it wasn't angels, it'd be orcs. Oh, it's very industrial. It's it's very like Sauron and the Tower, and it's very Lord of the Ringsy. And also, is it just that Asriel is amazing at getting people to build things for him, like the bears building him like a super sweet ski chalet on the side of a mountain, or? Is it that he's been working on this secretly for like years and years and years? Because this sounds like an absolute operation. And Lyra has maybe been in the new world for like tops a week, which means same for Asriel. How has this happened in in this amount of time? It's outrageous. Like either he's been secretly working on this his entire life. I imagine that he probably was like making the plans and stuff for it, but there was no way for him to make contact with with whoever's in these other worlds because he's only just learned that he can cut through and he's blown a fucking hole in the ass of the world as you said so yeah how how has this happened so quickly like even if he had the plan you would still how has he got all these things and beings and whatever to help him so quickly right that escalated quickly like too quickly especially if he was like you know his biggest achievement was opening a gateway and what now he's just like ordering angels around and building giant fortresses and either that or he's rocked up to somebody else's fortress that just like happens to be there and like sat himself on the throne and been like oh this is mine now (laughs) and we're gonna make some improvements here yeah like scardy style (laughs) this is a bit where she says that and is lord asriel there she said yes he is there the angels replied then let's fly to meet him and you must be my guard of honour. Obediently, they spread their wings and set their course towards the gold-rimmed fortress with the eager witch flying before them. I don't know if it's obediently or if they were just going in that direction anyway, but from Ruta's point of view, they're her angels now. <laughs> Ruta's angels, like Charlie's angels, but yeah. much more deadpan. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of this chapter? I thought it was like a tough one. It's a lot. Phil has done a lot of exposition in this chapter, a lot of world building, some really beautiful descriptions, but almost too many of them. You could have picked any number of paragraphs to read out in this chapter for like an epic description of an epic scene. And like, that's great. But for me, it's like, it's a lot of those to digest in one go and you maybe get a little bit bored of the taste. Yeah, I just find that like, I think Ian from the Dark Material podcast said this when we were chatting to him. Some of the chapters are like, too long or they have too much in them that you just kind of wish that Phil would just pop another number in between them, do you know what I mean? Just split it up into like two chapters. It obviously was a long chapter in terms of length but also in terms of like the actual things in it. It was a lot to take in and then a lot to like talk through. It's so much. It easily could have been two chapters. We easily could have had a Lee chapter and a Seraphina chapter. You just easily could have done that. That is literally like there's a little like line break even where it separates the two halves of the chapter. Just Pop a number in there, Phil. <laughs> Make help our lives out. easier. <laughs> Please help us. Uh. Do you have an award to give out? My award is the Audacity Award, and it's going to Ruta Scardi because Amazing. she has the audacity. <laughs> she's only just heard of angels. She didn't really know what they were, but she thought they were massive and intimidating. And she was like, I'm going to be the boss of you. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets the award for the audacity. <laughs> great, great. Love it. She deserves it. Yes. Who is your award for this week? Mine's for Hester. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that means that Lee gets an award too, but I'm fine with that. She's just so clever I love it when she was like, we're renegades. Fucking love to see that. And yeah, she just did a really good job. She's really good at like protecting Lee. And I think they make a really good team. 
Actually, probably more than any other person and demon team that we've met so far. I think Hester and Lee make the best team. You definitely get the impression they've spent a lot of time alone together and like they're really in tune with each other which i could see he just spends loads of hours in a balloon with her so yeah i love it yes hester you are renegades oh renegades of our hearts (laughs) hester and the renegades new band name (laughs) another one another one add that to the list (laughs) yeah the next chapter oh yeah tell us what's the next chapter called it's called the rolls royce oh fancy I wonder who owns a Rolls Royce, eh? Mm. That sounds like something that happens in our world, unless Lyra has a Rolls Royce in hers. I mean, I doubt it. <laughs> exactly. Ooh, very exciting. We hope you've been enjoying listening to our book episodes. If you are keeping up to date with the TV series, we are currently doing tv episodes every friday they're in the uk the episodes are on a monday and we're putting them out on a friday so if you'd like to tune into those they are not spoiler free but they are lots of fun if you enjoy listening to us rambling we are still running our prize draw for reviews so if you leave us a review a positive review please on apple podcasts or facebook or any podcast apps that you can leave a review if you screenshot that review and email it to us we'll enter you into a prize draw and when we get 50 positive reviews and emails will draw out 10 names and those people will get some free merch bundles the email address that you need to send those to is her.materialspod at gmail.com your email is your entry if you don't send the email we won't be able to find you thank you in advance for your kind words and five stars we appreciate it so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rage. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lee and Hester, you can find me hanging out on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. And we'll see you soon. And don't forget, keep telling stories. And all will be well. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>